Good morning, Grace. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. We're on our second week in our new series, but also turn to John chapter 1. We have some unfinished business with Peter in John chapter 1 that we're going to uh, return to as well today. And at the outset of this sermon, I want to remind you of one of the three uses of God's law. One of the uses of the law is that you and I would be exposed That we would recognize our sinfulness. So today, as you hear the sermon, I want you to feel the weight and the crushing weight of the law as it exposes your heart that you do not, in spite of what you may think, you do not love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the law. That is a commandment that comes to us, but none of us do it. So let that crush you. Let it sweep the legs out from underneath you. Let it expose you. And then... The gospel does its work. The gospel is good news that Jesus loved the Lord, his God, with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in the gospel, his love for God gets credited to us so that God sees us as people who love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You must understand the use of the law and it's one of its uses and the gospel in order to understand some of the tensions that you may feel in a sermon. So today... I hope you don't leave saying that was a great sermon because I doubt that you will. But any week and every week, I hope that you leave not saying that was a great sermon. My prayer and my heartbeat is that you would leave every week not saying that's a great sermon, but leave every week saying, what a great Savior we serve. What a great Savior we have. So today, I hope you leave feeling more loved than ever by Jesus. But first, remember, you got to hear the bad news of the law. You don't love him. And the good news of the law is that Jesus did. All right. Now, remember how I told you last week that I would give you a more detailed and formal introduction to 1 Peter? Remember that promise that I made to you? Okay, remember how I also said that I was not perfect and that I would let you down and that I was a messy sinner? Well, guess what? I'm going to delay our formal introduction to 1 Peter until next week, Lord willing, where we'll look at some of the themes and things like that, the audience that Peter is writing to. But why are we going to delay it one more week? Here's the reason why. Because there is so much more gold to be mined out of that first verse, the first part of verse 1. There's still so much more goodness to squeeze out of it. So look at verse 1 of 1 Peter again. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You see, there's still so much more to see out of this verse. There's so much more truth in this verse lurking behind the scenes. And the truth that's lurking behind the scenes is our big idea today, and it's this. Find your hope and identity in Jesus' work and not yours. Find your hope in life. Find your identity, who you are. Let it be rooted in what Jesus Christ has done and not what you do or what you don't do. That's what we should grasp when we read verse one. So don't rush past the words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, because Peter has found his identity in Jesus Christ. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, a sent one, a messenger. He was one of the 12 men chosen by Jesus to walk with Jesus. His calling was to be an apostle. 
Peter did not choose Jesus. He did not choose to follow Jesus like it was his own idea. He wasn't seeking Jesus out. He did not answer an ad in the newspaper that said, looking for disciples, come and meet this new rabbi. No, he didn't do that. Peter was chosen by Jesus to be one of his disciples. And Matthew gives us that account in Matthew 4, verses 18 to 20. Let me read it to you. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And what's so fascinating is that Jesus called Peter to be an apostle and a disciple while he was fishing, and Jesus' first words to Peter were, follow me. And as we'll see in John chapter 21 today, Jesus sent Peter out as an apostle and to be a pastor of his church. And when did Jesus come to Peter to commission him to pastoral ministry? He did it when Peter was fishing. And what were Jesus' last words to Peter in John 21? They were, follow me. So in their first account, encounter, Peter is fishing, and Jesus says, follow me. And in their very last encounter, Peter is fishing, and Jesus says, follow me. In saying, follow me, Jesus was telling Peter that his identity and his hope would now be wrapped up in Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer. So Peter's identity is now found in being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Peter's identity is in Christ because now he knows he is in union with Christ. Peter has found his hope in Jesus' work and not his own. But it has not always been this way with Peter. Peter was a mess, as we saw last week. Peter's spiritual journey has been bumpy. There has been much turbulence in Peter's spiritual journey, just like there is in ours, right? And why is that? Because Peter, like us, struggled to find his identity in Jesus. He was conditioned to find his identity in his own work, in his own righteousness, in what he did for God. And that's our default operating system. That's why Peter, as well as us, need this constant reminder. Find your hope and your identity in Jesus' work and not yours. And this is the truth that Jesus will impress on Peter in John chapter 21. So turn over to John chapter 21. We'll pick up where we left off last week. Remember what we saw last week, though. Peter was fishing in a boat. He saw the resurrected Jesus on the shore. He jumped out of the boat, swam to shore to be with Jesus. And when Peter got there, Jesus had breakfast ready and Jesus ate breakfast with Peter to show Peter that they were in fellowship with one another and that Peter's denial and cursing of Jesus a few days before did not separate him from his Lord. So we pick up the story there after they've eaten breakfast. John chapter 21, verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, 
tend my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. So there's a lot going on in this passage. It raises at least a couple of questions in my mind that we need to look at. Who or what is Jesus talking about when he asks Peter if he loves Jesus more than these? Who are the these? Second question is, why does Jesus ask Peter three times if he loves him? So let's look at each of these questions. Question number one, who are the these that Jesus speaks of? Jesus asked Peter if he loved him more than these. Well, who are the these that Jesus spoke of? There are several options. When Jesus asked Peter if he loved him more than these, who or what was he referring to? There are several options. And option number one is this. It could be the fishing equipment, the fish and the boats. Meaning, Peter, do you love me more than your job? Your business, the thing that you are good at, the thing that you are talented at, the thing that you have wrapped your identity up in your whole life. Do you love me more than fishing? But I don't think that's what Jesus is asking. So option number two, it could be the other disciples, his band of brothers, meaning, Peter, do you love me more than your friends, your buds, your homies, your band of brothers, your small group that you've been with for so long? But I don't think Jesus is asking that. Option number three, it could be, and I think this is the correct interpretation, is that Jesus is asking Peter if he loves him more than the other disciples love Jesus. In other words, Jesus is asking, Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples do? Do you love me more than John? More than John loves me? More than Thomas? More than Nathaniel? Do you still think that you love me more than they do? I think that's what Peter is being asked by Jesus. And here's why. Because Peter was always boasting in his works, in his own righteousness, his own identity of who he was as a good Jewish boy. Remember how Peter boasted about his devotion to Jesus in John 13, 37? Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. That's boasting in your own works, your own identity of how you view yourself. And in Matthew 26, verse 33, Peter boasted in his devotion to Jesus. Peter answered, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And in Mark 14, 29, Peter again boasted in his devotion to Jesus. Peter said to him, even though they, the rest of the disciples, even though they stink, even though they all fall away, I will not So the gospel writers portray Peter as this boastful disciple who is so confident in his love and his devotion to Jesus. So Peter's private thoughts and Peter's public words are this. All these other guys don't love you as much as I do, Jesus. They don't have their act together. They don't love you as much as me. But as for me and my devotion to you, I will never fall away. I will never desert you. All these other guys, their commitment stinks, but not mine. 
Understand this, Grace. There are still Peters like this in the church today. There are still people in churches all around the world who really believe, they really believe that they are better than other Christians. There are still people who arrogantly boast about how spiritual they are, how they have their act together and everybody else doesn't, how they love God and no one else does. What arrogance, what pride. And what does James say about being arrogant in James 4, 6? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Greek word opposes is a military term. It was used of armies. So what James is saying is that if you are arrogant and proud, then God will set himself against you like an army. Do you want to boast about how you're a good Christian and everyone else stinks, how they don't love Jesus like you do, how they're not committed to Jesus like you are? Then watch out because God opposes the proud. He sets himself up in military fashion against the proud. He opposes the proud and arrogant like an army. The better way that I propose to you is to humble yourself and receive his grace. And Peter had to learn that the hard way. In fact, Peter will go on to say the same thing as James says in 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Coming from the guy who never had humility towards his brothers, his fellow disciples. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with hum- humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And where did Peter learn this lesson of humility? Remember what happened in John 13 when Jesus took his clothes off and put on the slave apron and began washing the feet of the disciples? And what did Peter say? No way. You're not washing my feet. And Jesus told Peter, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will understand. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And in time, Peter learned that humility. In time, Peter learned that pride and arrogance are a poison. In time, Peter learned that pride and arrogance will blind you. In time, Peter would learn to find his hope and identity in Jesus' work and not his. In time, Peter learned that he didn't love Jesus any more than the other disciples. And that's why Jesus is asking Peter in John 21, 15, do you still think that you love me more than the other disciples? Do you still think that you are so great? Do you still think that your commitment to me is awesome? I mean, Peter, are you like the guy in the Lego movie, everything is awesome in my spiritual life? I mean, Peter, come on, is what Jesus is saying. You denied me three times. You cursed me. Do you still think that you love me more than the rest of these guys? That's what Jesus means when he says, do you love me more than these? He's asking Peter if he still thinks that he loves Jesus more than the other disciples. Jesus wants to address Peter's spiritual pride one last time just to remind him to not fall for the lie that he loves Jesus more than other people, more than the other disciples. That's question number one. Second question we need to answer is, why does Jesus ask Peter three times? Why does Jesus ask Peter three times if he loves him? I mean, 
if Jesus is omniscient, he is, yes, doesn't he know already if Peter loves him? Doesn't Jesus know these things? In fact, Peter actually says this to Jesus in verse 17 after the third time that Jesus presses him. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus did know. So why does Jesus ask Peter three times if he loves him? I think there are a few possible explanations. One, it could be because Jesus wants to seal the deal on Peter's restoration. Remember, Peter denied Jesus three times. So I think that Jesus wants to comfort Peter three times for every denial. And he does that by commissioning Peter to feed his sheep three times. So Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus asked Peter three times if he loves him. And then he tells Peter three times, go and feed and care for my sheep. You're not disqualified for ministry because you're a mess and a failure. Go feed my sheep. Go shepherd my church, my people. Go write letters like First Peter and Second Peter to the church. That's one way. But I don't think that's the main reason that Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him. I think Jesus did it because Jesus still wants to sever the root of pride that could pop up in Peter's heart again. I think Jesus wants to show Peter that his default operating system was boasting in his own works, finding hope in his own identity as a good Jewish boy. Remember, the picture of Peter that the gospel writers paint is that Peter was a very prideful man. He was messy. We saw that last week, but he was very prideful. They show us that Peter was a messy sinner who boasted in his own view of himself and how good he was. In fact, even the rest of the New Testament, we see Peter painted the same way. Peter really struggled with pride. I mean, that was his sin. It's obvious in Acts 10, when you read the story about the time Peter was praying and he got really hungry and then he saw a vision. So what happened in Acts chapter 10 when Peter was praying and he got hungry? And has that ever happened to you? You're praying and all of a sudden you're like, I'm really hungry. Happens to all of us, doesn't it? I'm starving, I gotta eat. The same thing happened to Peter. So Peter's praying and he's like, I'm hungry. And then Jesus appeared to Peter in a vision. So Peter has this vision and sees this sheet or something, some sort of blanket thing coming down from heaven. And it was full of all of these animals that were forbidden by the Old Testament law. They were, they were off limits to Jewish people in the Old Testament law. So this sheet comes down with all of these unclean animals that Jews weren't allowed to eat. And Jesus tells Peter to get up and to kill some of the unclean animals and to eat them. And what does Peter say in Acts 10, 14? By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. That's pride, Peter. I have never eaten anything unclean, Jesus. I'm a good Jewish boy. I'm so good. I'm such a good follower of Yahweh. And then Jesus tells Peter, that God has declared these animals clean. And now, now Peter and any Jew could eat them. And then Luke, the author of Acts, says something very interesting about their conversation. Acts chapter 10, verse 16. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. 
Three times, three times this whole thing played out. Three times Peter had to have the following conversation with Jesus. Jesus said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, no, Lord, I'm such a good Jewish boy. Jesus said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, no, Lord, I'm such a good Jewish boy. I'm so obedient. And Jesus said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, no, Lord. I'm such a good Jewish boy. I'm so obedient. I got all the stars in my Sunday school class because of my perfect attendance. I'm so good, Jesus. And it happened three times. Now, why? Why did Jesus have to tell Peter three times that it was now okay to eat unclean food? Because Peter was so slow. Because Peter still struggled with pride, thinking he was better than everyone else. And the same thing happened with Peter in Galatians chapter 2. But this time, Peter was eating with Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers, and he was probably eating some bacon with them, which he had not done previously until he saw the vision. But Peter is suddenly free to eat pork because Jesus appeared to him in the vision in Acts 10 and said, all of these unclean animals that were off limits, you can eat them now. So in Galatians 2, Peter is eating bacon and sausage with these Gentile believers. And then what happened when the Judaizers showed up? This group of false teachers that said Christians have to come back under the Mosaic law and obey every part of it. What happened when they showed back up? Well, Peter's pride came roaring back and Peter was like, I can't eat with you lowly Gentile believers anymore because I'm such a good Jewish boy. Get that bacon out of my face. That was a Nacho Libre tip of the hat for any of you. And Jesus in his grace sent the apostle Paul to rebuke and oppose Peter. And please get this, all of Galatians chapter two, verses 15 through 21, all of that is Paul's rebuke to Peter. Not just Galatians 2, 14. All of Galatians chapter two, verses 15 to 21 is Paul rebuking Peter. Keep it in its context when you quote these verses. Don't let those man-made paragraph divisions fool you. Don't let those quotation marks fool you. Paul's rebuke of Peter is more than just one verse in Galatians chapter two it's galatians chapter two not just verse 14 but verse 14 all the way to verse 21 now why why not just one verse why all of those verses because jesus is still trying to arrest peter's attention in galatians chapter two verses 14 to 21 jesus is rebuking peter jesus is opposing peter jesus is yelling at peter through the apostle paul and he is essentially saying this Find your hope and your identity in Jesus' work and not yours. So in Acts chapter 10 and in Galatians chapter 2, we have proof that Peter still continued to struggle with pride. And that's why Jesus asked Peter three times in John 21 if he still thought he loved Jesus more than the other disciples. And there's something interesting happening here in the Greek language because John uses two different Greek words for love in this conversation between Peter and Jesus. Jesus will will use the word agape, this high God-like love and phileo, love of brother, in this conversation. Scholars debate about whether or not there's significance that Jesus uses two different 
Greek words for love here, and I used to just think it was merely stylistic language that John was using in his gospel. But now I think it's very significant that he uses two very different Greek words for love in this passage. So let me read the conversation between Peter and Jesus with the Greek words for love, agape and phileo, kind of explained and fleshed out and nuanced in their conversation. Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me with serious covenant commitment, loyal love that never fails? And Peter says, yes, Lord. You know I love you like a brother with a family kind of love. Then feed my lambs, Jesus says. Now let me ask you again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me with serious covenant commitment, loyal love that never fails? And Peter says, yes, Lord. You know that I love you like a brother with a family kind of love. And then Jesus said, then tend my sheep. And now let me ask you again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me like a brother with a family kind of love? And then John tells us, that Peter was upset that Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me like a brother with a family kind of love? Because he'd already said it twice. So Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you like a brother with a family kind of love. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, why does Jesus use a different word for love in the first two questions? Why does Jesus ask Peter if he loves him with a loyal, covenant-keeping, committed highest form of love possible. I think Jesus does it to stress that no one can love God like this except Jesus. I think Jesus did this to expose Peter's pride, to expose Peter's normal operating system, which was to boast in his own works and in his own obedience. So Jesus questioned Peter like this to drive home the point that no one loves God like they are supposed to. And none of us gathered here today do that. Nor does Paul or David, Peter, Joshua. You fill in the blank. None of us Love God like we are supposed to. So did you know that nowhere in the Old Testament do you have anybody saying that they love God? No one person in the Old Testament tells God directly, I love you. There are plenty of commands for us to love God, but no one in the Old Testament directly tells God, I love you. Isn't that amazing? No one in the Old Testament tells Yahweh that they love him. No one does it. No one will dare say it. No one will dare utter those words. No one writes a psalm or a worship song with the words, I love you, Lord. But what do we like to sing in our songs? I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. No one in the Old Testament would dare say that. No one in the Old Testament, no Old Testament saint would ever sing, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. They would never sing that song. Because Old Testament saints would agree with Dr. Daniel Block. Old Testament professor, when he says, there is nothing humble about you telling God that you love him. And that's why no one in the Old Testament tells Yahweh, I love you. Think about that. There's nothing humble 
about telling God that we love him. Nothing humble about it. It's arrogant boasting. It's the height of arrogance. It's delighting in our love for God, our devotion to God, our commitment to God, our works for God, instead of boasting and delighting in Jesus' work. Now, this may be making some of you uncomfortable, so don't shoot the messenger, Grace, okay? Don't shoot the preacher making observations, I'm just making observations with you, and I love you, and I want to tell you the truth. I'd rather tell you what the Bible says and let that challenge the Hallmark card lyrics of a lot of our songs than sit back in fear of ruffling some feathers and say nothing to you. I love you enough to tell you the truth, even if you hate me. To tell you what I see in Scripture, even if it's not popular. And I told my wife Heather this week, I'm afraid we could take the lyrics from many of our songs that are popular in churches and slap them on a Hallmark card and they would be right at home. No one in the Old Testament ever told God that they love him. Now you may be thinking, but what about Psalm 18? It says that. And what about Psalm 116? Those Psalms have people telling God that they love him. Well, in Psalm 18, verse 1, which is translated in most English translations as, I love you, O Lord, or I love you, O Yahweh, the word translated as love ain't the word love. It's the Hebrew word rachum. It's compassion. It's, it's meaning that you have this deep feeling of compassion towards someone. And because we don't know how to translate or to deal with, I deeply have compassion for you, Yahweh, we don't know what to do with that, so we just translate it as, I love you. Oh, Lord, I love you, oh, Yahweh, but that's not the word. It's not the word love. And in Psalm 116, verse 1, which is translated as, I love the Lord because he heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, there's no direct object in Hebrew. The Hebrew is, I love because he heard my voice. There's no direct object, so the psalmist could be saying that he loves anything. I love my wife because the Lord heard my prayer. I love the people of God because the Lord heard my prayer. I love my enemies because the Lord heard my prayer. I love bacon because the Lord heard my prayer. There's no direct object. It's just, I love because. And it's just like that verse in 1 John four nineteen that says, we love because he first loved us. It doesn't say that we love God or we love him because he first loved us. It says we love because he first loved us. In the English Standard Version, the ESV translates it correctly. We love because he first loved us. There's no direct object in this verse either. It could be that we love others because he first loved us. Or we love bacon because he first loved us. And isn't bacon proof of his love? Bacon is proof of his love because in the new covenant, we get to eat bacon. It was off limits in the Old Te- to the Old Testament saints. But we get to enjoy it. We love bacon because he first loved us. Nobody in the entire Old Testament, and I think, if I'm correct, even in the New Testament, except for Peter here, no one tells God directly that they love him. And that's why Peter struggled with Jesus' questions in John 21. Peter is thinking this. How can I say that I love Jesus with a serious covenant commitment, loyal love that never fails, when no one in my Bible ever says that? 
Can I arrogantly presume to be the first follower of Yahweh to ever claim this? How can I say I love him with a serious covenant commitment, loyal love that never fails when I just denied him and cursed him? How can I tell Jesus that I love him like that? I know how I'll answer my Lord's questions. I'll tell him that I love him like a brother. That I love him with a family kind of love because that's true. That's it. I won't use the word agape. I'll use the Greek word phileo, family love. We could learn something from Peter here because what do we like to talk about? What do we like to sing about? My love for Jesus. My love for God, my surrender, my devotion, my commitment. For some reason, we are more impressed with our love for God than God's love for us. We love to sing about our love. We love to talk about it. And I'm not trying to stir anything up. I'm not trying to throw songwriters under the bus here. I just want to point out that no one tells the Lord that they love him in the Old Testament but it's something that we love to talk and sing about. I'm afraid that God's not impressed with us or our devotion to him. As Dr. Daniel Block says, the person who impresses God is the one whose walk is humble. And guess what? He, the humble one, never talks about it. That would be the height of arrogance. He, the humble one, talks about the grace of God. He talks about God walking with him, the amazing mercy It's not about my walk with God. He or she may talk about other people walking with God, but not himself or herself. We are more impressed with our love for God. Whom are we worshiping when we sing, I love you, Lord? There's nothing humble about you telling God that you love him. Maybe there's something wrong with me, but I cannot begin or end a prayer with, I love you, Lord. The problem is, I don't love the Lord the way I should. And so my hunch is that it is quite in order to ask the Lord to transform our pathetic love into that in which he would want it to be. It's interesting that there are hundreds of injunctions in the scripture to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, but not a single person ever says, I do it. To me, that's the height of arrogance, to say, I measure up to what God asks of me. And so you see in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, you see these collective plural community verses that talk about us loving God. And they're usually in the context of our sinfulness, like Romans eight twenty eight, which we love and we know for those who love God, all things work together for the good, but that's coming on the heels of Romans 7 of, we don't love you because we do the thing we don't want to do and the thing that we want to do, we don't do. So it's usually in the context of our sinfulness. So it's, it's kind of a given. We know you don't love God like that because I just talked about it in Romans 7, Paul would say. Or it's in the context of distinguishing the world, people that don't love Jesus and the people of God. Like Psalm 97 says, oh, love the Lord, all you, his saints, and hate evil. So there's kind of this distinction between the world and the people of God. Do we love him with a family kind of love? Yes, Peter will say that in 1 Peter verse uh, 8 of of chapter one, he'll say, you have not seen him, but you love him. Do we love him in that sense broadly? Yes. But to say, I measure up to what God have asks of me is the height of arrogance. And that's why no one in the Old Testament tells Yahweh, I love you. 
And that's why Peter won't do it here in John 21, and it's why we shouldn't do it. Because we don't love the Lord like we should. We don't love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Only Jesus loved God the way the law demands. Only Jesus loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Only Jesus was fully surrendered. Only Jesus was fully surrendered and fully committed to God. Only Jesus' walk with God is impressive. So what do we do about it? We humble ourselves and we pray that Jesus would transform our pathetic love for him. And you'll only begin to quit saying and singing things like, I love you, Lord, when you realize you don't measure up. And you'll only begin to quit saying things like, I surrender all, when you realize that you don't surrender all. Only Jesus surrendered all. You can never surrender all. You can never be fully surrendered. Grace comes when you finally realize and you accept the hard, bitter truth that your commitment stinks. And understanding that will lead you to find your hope and your identity in Jesus' work and not yours. See, God's word, God's law exposes us God's law says that we should love him with all of our heart, that we are required to love him wholeheartedly, but we don't. So the law exposes us. It shows us that we don't love him as we should, and that's where we are. That's where we are every day. That's where we live. That's our life. We don't love him as we should, and it should humble us. That's the work of the law, to expose our sin and our shortcomings so that we see that we need a savior. And that's the work of the gospel, the good news, the announcement that frees us, that Jesus loved God with all of his heart and that his work gets credited to us in the gospel. He takes our sin, our rebellion, our terrible commitment to him and he gives us his perfect record of law keeping, his perfect record of God loving. And he gives that to you. And he gives that to me so that when God sees us, he sees us as blameless. He sees us as people who have loved him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The gospel brings the good news. The gospel is the announcement that you can find your hope because your commitment stinks. You can find your hope and you can find your identity in Jesus' work and not yours. You can find your identity in the fact that Jesus fully obeyed the law, not in your own obedience to it. See, some of us are like Peter. We find our identity in how good we are, how faithful we are at prayer and Bible reading. And some of us find our identity in how we don't do that, in how we stink and we're losers. And the hope of the gospel is that you can find your hope and your identity in what Jesus has done for you. Not what you do for him, not what you don't do for him. That doesn't define you. That's not your identity, Christian. Your identity is what Jesus has already done for you. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across to Peter here. And after this exposing conversation where Peter's heart commitment was exposed, Jesus told Peter once again, follow me. And when the conversation continued as they walked on the beach, Peter once again lost focus and Jesus had to remind him for a second time, you Follow me. Look at John chapter 21, verses 20 to 23. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That's John. 
the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So not content with Jesus' commission to him to follow Jesus by feeding his sheep, by shepherding his church, by being a pastor, Peter wants to know about another disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, which is the apostle John. And remember, Jesus had just told Peter They're gonna stretch your hands out when you're older, meaning you're gonna die the death, on a death like mine on the cross. You're gonna be crucified, Peter. This is what's gonna happen to you. And Peter says, but what about that guy? What about John? What's gonna happen to him? And what does Jesus say? Don't worry about it. If I want to keep him alive until I return, that's my prerogative. You follow me. You follow me, Peter. Keep your eyes on me. Get it? Don't get distracted by looking at others or comparing yourself with others. Keep your eyes on me. And that's exactly what Peter did. And yes, he still hit some bumps on the road. There was much turbulence in his life as we saw in Acts chapter 10 and in Galatians 2. But Peter went and did as Jesus said. He was a chosen apostle, a sent one, a messenger. He was a pastor. And he went and fed the church with his two letters, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. He found his identity in Christ. No longer comparing himself to other people. No longer thinking, I love you, Jesus, more than everybody else does because their commitment stinks. He no longer found his identity in that. He was no longer comparing himself with other people. What about him? What about him? Instead, he came back and got settled. And he found his identity in being an apostle of Jesus Christ. So as we close, let me ask you today, where's your identity Is it rooted in what Jesus has done for you? Or are you obsessed with how you don't measure up, how you fail him, how you don't love him? Do you feel dirty all the time? Shame and guilt and condemnation, is that your identity? Or is your identity that you are obsessed with your performance, your works, your devotion and your surrender and your commitment to Jesus. Where is your identity today? Is it rooted in Jesus and what he has already done for you or is it rooted in what you don't do for him or what you do for him? The good news of the gospel is that we get credited with Jesus God-loving. And so God sees us as blameless in his eyes now. God sees us as if every single thought Word, action, and motive was done from a heart that loves God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's your identity, Christian. Your love stinks, but his love will never fail. Let's pray. And so, Father, we are humbled at your word. Some people might be angry because the law has exposed them. Your law has done its work of exposing us as people who think we have it all together, but we don't. The height of arrogance, God, is to think that we love you the way Jesus loved you. We do love you. With a family love, Jesus is our older brother. You are our father. 
and our love is up and down. There's turbulence. Forgive us for being prideful and boastful and arrogant. Forgive us for wallowing in condemnation and guilt and shame. Forgive us for looking at ourselves and not looking at your son. Would you turn our hearts once again to see Jesus? Oh God, and may we leave here today feeling more loved than ever because of what Jesus has done. Transform our pathetic love for you into what you would want it to be. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.